The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this, no wait, let's let Johnny Gilbert say it. This is troubling. This is troubling. A gubernatorial debate in Pennsylvania will be moderated by Alex Trebek. Host of Jeopardy and a man whose qualifications seem to be that he seems smart because he has all the answers written down. Maybe Alex Trebek will be a good debate moderator. I might have chosen someone who lives within a couple thousand miles of Pennsylvania or who has reported on national political issues. But if you can't get that guy, at least get the guy who can seamlessly segue from pension reform to potpourri for 800. Small note about Alex Trebek as interlocutor. He's a terrible interviewer went to a rock shop nearby and I got a piece of a meteorite. And so I said, this meteorite traveled unknown millions of miles. It's unknown millions of years old. Will you marry me? He said, yes. What connection does a meteorite have to a proposal of marriage? It's just cool. Oh. (laughs) Right. But mostly in these interview segments with the contestants, he just says, good for you. Also, Alex Trebek as debate moderator would be weird because some of the great debate answers of all time, like, I knew Jack Kennedy, you are no Jack Kennedy, or I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience, those kind of answers will just get from Trebek a, ooh, sorry, cannot accept that, must be in the form of a question. On the other hand, there are legendary debate gaffes, which he would reward, like, Who am I? Why am I here? That is correct. And you have control of the board. And I am worrying that former Libertarian Party candidate Gary Johnson will get into the Pennsylvania governor's race because he seems to have the format down. And what is Aleppo? Anyway, I think we missed a real opportunity if we're going to have a game show host as debate moderator. I'd have tabbed Mark Summers from Double Dare. Just want to hear Governor Tom Wolf say, "Uh, I don't know what to do on fracking. Instead, I'd like to take the physical challenge. Or if the last election were held under, say, press your luck rules. No Russians, no Russians, no Russians, stop! I think Hillary Clinton may have actually been playing that last election under game show rules. She'd lay out a cogent, well-thought-out policy response, you know, 100 people surveyed, top five answers on the board. Name a reason for your current economic woes. And then Hillary would answer... Uh, erosion of the manufacturing base and her team back in Brooklyn would be like good answer good answer but she'd get a ooh let's see what people said instead ding the Chinese ding the Mexicans and the number one answer ding Obama hey maybe Alex Trebek can elevate the conversation If not him, Sajak can do the next presidential debate Wheel of Fortune style. And that would also be an advantage to Trump because he's not worried about going bankrupt. On the show today, I spiel about common ground and compromises on gun politics and why none of those things matter. But first, you know, it's really not so bad. Really. Illness, income, infirmary, all trending in the right direction. There is reason for optimism. I say this all the time. The question is, why don't enough of us believe it? Greg Easterbrook has essentially been writing on this issue for 15 years on how it might not look good, but it's better than it looks.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm joined now by Greg Easterbrook, who has written, I often cite this, maybe if you're a big listener of The Gist, you know I've said this, my favorite nonfiction book of all time, The Progress Paradox. And that was such a good book. I'm a little thankful that it, it got credence and people cite it, but it could have easily become one of these uh, totems where just the title of it, like a Malcolm Gladwell blink, became a shorthand for actually uh, thinking about its arguments. What The Progress Paradox was about is essentially in a sentence, uh, things are getting a lot better, but we think they're staying the same or getting worse. Who better to write a follow-up on that, and this is in keeping with his whole career, than Greg Easterbrook, who's written, It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Hello, Greg. Thanks for coming in. Sure. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'll give you the floor. Wow me with why things are really better than we might think they are. All right. Well, if you, if you want to look at big picture numbers, and these are, the, these are the main currents of recent history. Obviously, I don't think that everything's fine for everybody. There's problems everywhere. But if you look at the main currents, all forms of pollution except for greenhouse gases are in a long-term phase of decline. We'll get to greenhouse gases, I'm sure, in a minute. Violent crime is in long-term decline. Even with the recent horror in Parkland, Florida, yeah. the odds of any American being killed in a homicide are steadily declining. I'll add to that. The UN calculates international homicide rates. They're actually in decline, too. International is in decline. That's if, not wars. It's just international homicide rates. But war yeah. is also in, war decline. Is in decline. For 25 too. years, both frequency, intensity of combat, yeah. measured by deaths of combatants and also of civilians. As the world gets bigger and more people live in our world and there's plenty of guns, we're actually fighting and killing less. Discrimination of almost all forms is in a long-term phase of decline. It has farther to go, but incidence of almost all diseases, including heart disease and cancer, the number one and two killers, and stroke, excuse me, the number one, two, and three killers, they're all in long-term phases of decline. 
same time, what's getting more? Well, education levels are rising. We're living longer. The expansion of longevity isn't just in nice communities in the United States or European Union. It's all across the world. It's even in Afghanistan. People are living longer. So when we see a recent stat that shows uh, longevity or the actual lifespan of white Americans has declined for a couple of years or two out of the last yes, three, yes. and that's, that's kind of unprecedented, how alarming should that be? Well, the line that I use is most things are getting better for most people. Yes. Because that's the line that you can defend intellectually. I certainly don't mean that everything is fine. And I don't mean that there shouldn't, you shouldn't get angry or worried when bad things happen, when Parkland, Florida happens, when Trump becomes president. You should be angry about Parkland, Florida. You should be worried about Trump. There are lots of bad forces in the world and there are more coming. And opioid overdoses is one of them. We're now in the fourth consecutive year where an American policeman is more likely to be called to the scene of an overdose than to the scene of a homicide. So you can be worried and upset and angry about those things and still acknowledge that, in, in fact, life is mostly getting better for most people. Right. I was thinking of some other things that are maybe too fine-grained to even make the book. Have you ever looked at auto theft rates or auto theft rates in New York City? <laughs> I'll, I'll admit not to knowing that. 147 cars were stolen in the early 90s. 7,000. 147,000 down to 7,000. It gets no credit. No one says, hey, my car is safer. There is such tangible reasons why it stopped, mostly because of technology, which we bemoan, but they make you know keys that only work for your cars. But we've taken a problem. If you remember being here in the 1990s, this was talked about a lot. This was worried about a lot. This weighed upon people a lot. We've taken it totally off the table. And I literally have never heard anyone say, hey, things are a lot better when it comes to auto thefts. That's just one small example. Well, maybe this is because nobody wants to steal a Prius. That would be one possibility. But <laughs> the larger point that I would make from that, if you, if you look at almost all categories of technology, we thought that technology would get become more dangerous and more destructive. Instead, it's the other way around. Cars generally are much safer than they used to so be. So much safer. Fatalities per mile traveled are way down. Aircraft are far safer than they used to be. One place we haven't done this with is guns. Guns could be designed so that they are less dangerous. This is not a crazy idea. We just haven't tried to improve the safety of the firearm in the way we have tried to improve the safety of cars and aircraft. Yeah, it's a good analogy. People analogize to cars and guns all the time. You need a license. You can get your license taken away. We know it's deadly, so we take it seriously. And by the way, we made progress when it came to killing with assault rifles during the 94 to 2004 yeah, we assault weapons ban. It wasn't a panacea, but we made progress. All these times where we choose to make progress, we almost always make progress. Why don't we recognize the good that's happening and the progress that's being made? This belief on the part of Americans is, is many generations old, more than a century old. We constantly think our society is about to collapse. Hell in if, a handbasket, yeah. Hell in a handbasket, right, yeah. yes. Social science research tends to show that we base our judgments about whether we feel good about our, ourselves and our societies based on what we expect to happen in the near term in the next five to ten years, not on what's happened now. So in other words, if smog goes – if you've, you were asking me before we started about Los Angeles, if you're in Los Angeles – 
30, 40 years ago where there was 100 stage one smog alerts per year, you would have thought, my God, how could anyone live in this city in yeah. the future? Now there hasn't been a stage one smog alert in Los Angeles in four years. So we take that for granted. We immediately take for granted that Los Angeles, of all places, has clear, clean air. And then we worry about what could go wrong in Los Angeles in the future. That's human nature. And it's to the extent that it's human nature, as long as we're aware of this tendency within ourselves, it's okay. Now, part of the reason why maybe it maybe it is better than it looks, but that doesn't matter as much. I've heard Yasha Monk giving the, and this is a rough stat, but in the 25 years after World War II for Western Europe and America, wages doubled. And for the next 25 years after that, they doubled again. Now, since then, we have whatever 4% growth. So maybe it's outpacing inflation, but it's nowhere near the, uh, he calls it the democracy premium. He looks at it and why we are losing faith in government. But is it so important that things are getting a little better or is it much more important that things are not nearly improving as much as they once improved? If you look only at wages, or household income, which Mm -hmm. is very close to the same thing as wages, then you feel discouraged because household income has grown very slowly in the last 25 years. And if you look at what people talked about, people meaning Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in the last presidential campaign, they talked exclusively about household income. If you want to get depressed, you talk only about income. But you don't run your household based on income. You run your household based on buying power, which is a different number. Buying power is income minus taxes plus benefits divided by consumer prices and household size. If you look at that number, the buying power number has grown about 3% a year every year since the end of World War II. It looks like an escalator going up to the top level of the mall. It's changed very little. Taxes have been cut for the middle class and lower middle class in the last 20 years. Government benefits have increased very dramatically. Consumer prices have been low. Inflation's been low. Household size has declined. If you think about buying power, everything's just the way it used to be. One of my problems is I voted for Hillary Clinton because I thought that she would deliver more gradual improvements like Barack Obama steered the battleship, the aircraft carrier of state, towards more gradual improvements. Material standards of living would get slightly better. The international picture would be better than some alternative. Just like slight improvements, right? That does not fly on a national level. People do not want that. People reject that. People want hope. People want vision. People want a leader to put their finger on this great malaise that's affecting America. And either the finger is something, you know, nationalistic and racist like Trump was doing or some version of, you know, truth-seeking liberal like Bernie Sanders was doing. So I don't see any politician taking everything that you're pointing out and being able to weave a message that will appeal to most people. If you believe that society is about to collapse, what you want is some crazy man like Trump to come in and burn everything down and build walls and tear everything up. If Trump actually succeeds in doing that, it'll be a true calamity. If you believe that things are basically getting mostly better for most people, then you want a more of same candidate. Then you're stuck with Hillary Clinton, which didn't make people feel better, but, but sure was a better policy choice. But it's not just America. It's all the nationalistic movements that either won or didn't in Europe, you know, in Hungary it won, in France it was uh, defeated, nationalism in Brexit uh, showed its ugly head. And so this convinces me that it must have something to do with the fact that economies are growing pretty slowly and maybe that we're feeling anxiety that's not purely logical, but how can you argue with a feeling? Well, I spend a chapter in the book 
on what we do about inequality. And I think all roads lead to universal basic income. I think it could work. I think it's very promising. It's incredibly expensive. We're not preparing for it in any way. But I think it's where society has to go to prevent us from developing a, a sort of a fundamental two-tier society where the people at the bottom cannot change their social class. That might be the one idea that's less popular than things are pretty good. I mean, the Swiss rejected UBI. Yes. Well, <laughs> if you just look at how much is it costs, you would say this can never work. Right. But if, if you first say, well, first we reform society, put ourselves in a position to pay what it costs, then, then it's more doable. But I go through the math in the book. The math is discouraging, but I think it's, I think it's where we're going to head anyway. If, if America has you know, economic pillars and promises, it's something like there will be no desperate privation. You will have a chance to succeed, and we will not have gigantic chasms in wealth between the rich and poor. And we're doing worse on those things than we ever have. If the people at the top, clearly the super rich in the United States, they're arrogant. They're disgusting. They fly private jets. And most of them have terrible taste in art, too, by the way. But does that actually harm you? As long as everybody else who's not super rich is also doing okay, does it harm you that there's a super rich? I think in the long run, it's not healthy for societies. And don't take my word on that. Take Milton Friedman's. Yeah. Milton Friedman used to say that having a super rich is not a healthy condition for a society. So, you want to really shake that up, universal basic income is so far the one practical idea that would shake that up. Well, the, the, the super rich, the presence of them, and some of them, I mean, deserve, what does that mean? But, you know, we could point to people who've totally reshaped our society through their guile and will and Jeff Bezos, and very few wouldn't say he doesn't deserve some version of super richness, right? But to me, what it does, and not just the super rich, but the income inequality, what it does is it just skews the otherwise positive statistics. Right, so I'm, I'm with yes. you, you know? Yeah, the, the misery index is really low. There's low inflation and there's pretty good growth. But if so much of that growth goes to so few people, then there's not really good growth for most people. We should look at median statistics more often. Well, I, I think we would all agree that you'd want to live in a society where the surgeons earned more than the cab drivers. Yeah. But do you want to live in a society where the surgeon earns 10,000 times more than the cab drivers? Couldn't you have a society where a surgeon earns, say, 10 times more than a cab driver? There would still be plenty of incentive to be a surgeon instead of a cab driver. Yeah. So here's my old man rant. I was just reading an article in the New York Times about obesity in sub-Saharan Africa, and mostly it was about Kenya. But there was a line or two about obesity growing in Ethiopia. Obesity in Ethiopia. Maybe they know there was this concert called Live Aid, but starvation in Ethiopia was a constant problem of my youth. No one ever said, hey, it's solved. The next time I hear about it is 22 years later, and the context is, oh, yeah, there's an obesity problem in Ethiopia. Oh, my God. The first chapter in It's Better Than It Looks is about the fact that we thought we were going to run out of food. and Now we have so much food. We have too much by a lot of ways of measuring, and I'm nobody to talk. Uh, and Will this even be true if the world goes up to 8, 9, 10 billion people? And it looks like, yeah, we're going to have too much food for 10 billion people. Yeah. Violence in Mexico is an ongoing social issue, as you know. But more Mexicans die of obesity than through criminal violence. I see a good positive indicator for the entire Western Hemisphere that hardly anybody is aware of. The Colombian Civil War, yeah, still met some Mets, but there is no war anywhere in an entire hemisphere yeah. has this ever happened in human history. And it's not a reason to become complacent. We shouldn't be complacent. It's not a reason to stop. There are all kinds of problems that need to be solved in Mexico and especially in Central America as, as, as really bad social problems that need to be addressed. 
But on the other hand, can't you be happy about the fact that an entire hemisphere has no war? Has that ever Unless happened? Unless you count the, the drug war as a war, which some do. Well, if you think yeah. of it as a military war. But it's yeah. still solvable. I mean, right. I think our history on drug wars is we stamp it down in one country and it goes to the next. Maybe the solution there is legalization of drugs? Oh, I, I think that the intellectual case for that is very strong. If drugs were legalized, there's no way around the fact that some people would get addicted to drugs who are not currently addicted to drugs. Yeah. But crime would go down so much that the benefits would outweigh the costs. It would go down in places like Mexico Yeah. more than it would even in the United States. Yeah. Um, this is just the I pick smart guy's brain portion of the show. Legalized pot in places like Colorado and throughout the West. Is that a sufficient test case for legalization of drugs? I got to say, I just spent a month in Colorado. It didn't seem any different at all to me, but maybe I wasn't going to the right pot shops, I guess. (laughs) When you do social test cases, usually they work out pretty well. For example, people always say, no, 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 we can't raise the minimum wage to a living wage because that would ruin employment. Look at California, which has a much higher minimum wage than Texas does. California also has the same unemployment numbers as Texas does. Um, States trying out ideas, when they do try out ideas, progressive ideas, not always, but almost always win. Hmm. Greg Easterbrook is the author of It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. So yesterday I spieled about gun laws. I played some mainstream conservative arguments by people who I listen to and more or less respect. I do think they have the worst end of this debate, and they probably know they have the worst end of this debate. But that is true only insofar as it is a debate. I mean, if it were a debate, I would posit, say, that banning the AR-15 and similar weapons and limiting magazines to 10 rounds is a pretty unassailable starting point if you want to do something positive about limiting the destruction of mass gun slaughters. That, I think, is really an easy plank to defend, were it a debate. But when we say the gun debate, we use the word debate as standing in for, well, which side will get their way? Which side will win their argument? Because in a democracy, the better arguments win. And that's not what's going on in this democracy on that argument. I guess I think of it as a debate or in terms of a debate because of how I look at the world, right? I believe in reason and I try to talk and be convincing and also what my job is. I put forward arguments for a living. I am not naive. I do not think the best policies correlate exactly with the best arguments. But I think most of the time there is a correlation, not on this one, not on this argument. I think it used to be that the better part of the debate would often lead to better policy, more than it does now. We live in a presidential system, not a parliamentary system, and a parliamentary system would yield more compromise just naturally, and we have elements of our presidential non-parliamentary system which further get in the ways of compromise. The old saws that are true but rusty, filibusters, political parties, lobbying, gerrymandering. Even if you add those up, I don't think that's why there's no progress on a, a gun bill. I think there's no progress on a gun bill because people who really like guns identify that position as fundamental to their way of life and their values, whereas people who don't like guns are by and large less maniacal about their preference. So sadly, on gun control, more than a lot of other issues, I think if I made good points, 
and maybe you, if you disagreed with me, made good points, and then we'd get to a place where we both kind of agreed and we'd work out the best points. I think less than many, many other issues would that sort of agreement and that sort of process writ large write bills. And yesterday I talked about the, the, let's call them the Helen Lovejoy caucus, who just badly wants to keep kids who saw their schools get shot up off the airwaves for the sake of the children. And I think that's wrong. But occasionally, even the brightest and most convincing of those kids, in fact, David Hogg, who's a real person, not a, not a bot, he was, he was alleged to have been an actor, David Hogg, real person, really saw his school get shot up, but he also did make this particular wrong point. It was on ABC's This Week. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Republican. If you have a good idea, let's work together as Americans and come to a compromise. Because in politics, if no one side ever wins, it's always through compromise that changes happen. That's not true. Obamacare won without a Republican. The recent tax cuts won without a Democrat. Compromise has not been the hallmark of legislative achievement in America for a long time. What is winning elections and enacting your agenda? The wins have to be big enough to overcome the filibuster rules too. You know, 55 senators voted for the post-Sandy Hook gun bill, and that was way short. Convincing people of goodwill on the other side to see the light is just not how progress is made in America. Usually, it's winning, enacting a law, or having the Supreme Court do so, and then most people realize, huh, that's not so terrible. Gay marriage, civil rights acts, they all work that way. Civil Rights Act, by the way, it wasn't partisan, Democrat and Republican, but it was almost exactly North and South. So it was very, very much sorted. One side won, the legislation passed, it worked, eventually. The public wasn't against the Clinton assault weapons ban, you know. They were actually against letting it expire. But expired it did, and then we saw a spike in mass casualty gun killings with the very weapons that were banned. Yes, Columbine happened during the ban, during the Clinton ban. But Paul, Sandy Hook, San Bernardino, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Parkland, they happened after the ban with weapons that would have been banned. Other mass shootings happen with handguns, and most shootings aren't mass shootings. But it's a simple premise. If the goal was to do what we can to minimize mass shooting fatalities, we'd enact something like the assault weapons ban that for a decade did in fact limit fatalities to an extent we can know. Now, I didn't say it's going to end all deaths. I didn't use the word panacea. I didn't mention that, you know, 97% of gun homicides have nothing to do with mass killings. But because I stated my opinion pretty plainly and because I mocked, I seriously mocked the commentators who are trying to pick at the edges of what's a pretty unassailable argument that the assault weapons ban, some form of it needs to come back. I got feedback like this along the lines of uh, self-described liberal gun owner Derek Parks. I think the issue many gun owners have with incremental and, in our opinion, ineffective solutions is that when this solution doesn't work, gun control advocates will push for even more regulations. Yes, but what I'm talking about is the Clinton assault weapons ban, which did work. I define work as limiting deaths and mass killings. It seems to have worked. And the response to that regulation, which did work, was the public wanted it to continue, but it stopped. And gun control advocates were accused of wanting to go further. So that situation that Derek Parks writes about, you have a solution that's not a solution, and all it is is a, uh, a camel nose under the tent for more regulations. Well, when the solution was a solution, the gun control crowd was accused of the same thing. And, and they're probably right. The gun control crowd probably does want to control guns more. 
But that's fine. They're not going to because they didn't win the election. You guys did. The writer, Derek, offers some compromises. He says, let's compromise universal background checks for concealed carry reciprocity and bump stock ban for easing restrictions on suppressors. Again, that's not how America works. If America worked where I traded something and you traded something, we got to a better place, it would be a different America. Works by winning an election and getting your legislation passed. And as far as specifically the bump stock ban, raise your hand if you're in favor of bump stocks. Let's just all remember that. Almost no one publicly says we need to bring back machine guns, but they want to at least not ban a device that turns a gun into something close to a machine gun. So the difference between a semi-automatic just used without a bump stock and with, the New York Times put together some audio. This is with a bump stock. Ninety shots in ten seconds in Las Vegas. Pulse is without a bump stock. Twenty-four shots in nine seconds. Just get to fire more shots per second with a bump stock. I think the people against a bump stock ban are making a tactical mistake. Parkland, they didn't use them. Shooters who are mobile and walking around don't use them usually. In Las Vegas, he did. But let's say the next mass slaughter, uh, the shooter used bump stocks. So all the congressmen against the bump stock ban are going to feel intense heat on that day. And for what? For standing up to this shoulder device that turns your semi-automatic into closer to an automatic? Also on Twitter, in a similar vein to you need to listen to the other side, was Brosnan Hamilton who told me, if you try to railroad liberal gun control reform down the throats of red America without their good faith input, you will have a permanent cultural divide on this issue and empower gun extremists. Wow, I'd hate to live in a country with a permanent cultural divide and empowered gun extremists. He suggests maybe start by just listening to people instead of dismissing all the right offhand. Here was my reply to him. I wrote this on Twitter about about his railroading liberal gun control. I wrote, choo-choo! Three to four hundred mass shootings every year and nothing gets done. Choo-choo! Yeah, what a train, what a powerful locomotive. It's, it's careening off the tracks, the tracks of no legislation five years after 26-year-olds are slaughtered. Look out, we're going too fast. Ah, runaway train. I was Twitter aggressive there. I did not see common ground. Maybe if I spoke to Brosnan Hamilton, we would have agreed on more. But thinking about that, thinking about communication, when to find the common ground, when to try to eviscerate the people you disagree with, listening to Tristan Harris, who's a former uh, Facebook employee who talks about the ills of social media. His theory is that even the best social media communication, in fact, all communication in the world today, headlines and statements, it's all exaggerated by 20%. There's that 20% exaggeration baked right in. Here he was talking to Ezra Klein on his podcast the other day. We ought to apply a discount to the... Um, you know, kind of to the exaggerative capacity or the sensationalist capacity to everything that we're reading because everything that we are seeing, this is why when you actually sit down and talk to someone in person, they seem much more reasonable than, than they ever seem on social media. It's true. I could have seen Brosnan Hamilton's eyes when I began crafting the argument with him in person. I could have made my choo-choo sound effects goofy, choo-choo, or I could have made them cutting choo-choo Brosnan. Maybe I would have thrown in a Thomas the Tank Engine reference. Oh, bother. And we all both would have agreed that I was listening to him and he was listening to me, and it's irrelevant. And I'm not saying it's irrelevant because, you know, I, I, I could do this thing too where it's, it's, I'm fed up and it's too late and I'm not making compromises. That's not why I'm saying it. I mean, I'm not making compromises. 
No one's making compromises. This is my point. It doesn't matter to getting the buy-in of other people with good faith. It matters to win elections. If you want to have gun control, you have to elect more politicians who want gun control or make the politicians who are somewhere in the middle really feel like they're going to pay if they don't reflect the will of the voters on gun control. And then once you have the ability to do so, pass the best, tightest measures you can. And then you reassure everyone, we're not going to take your guns. And then those people don't believe that you're not going to take their guns. But what you do is you don't take their guns. You just try to limit the slaughter as much as you can. You call that being railroaded? Fine. These days, I feel like I'm tied to the tracks. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. Joker, Joker, infrastructure funding. Ooh, he's going to go off the board with Songs of the South, wink. Circle gets the square, and I'd like to go to just senior producer Mary Wilson, the block, who says, well, Jim, I think a lot of people would be bothered if their spouse lied to them about having lobster claws instead of hands, so I'm going to say it's higher than 88. And Connie, you didn't choose bachelor number three. Bachelor number three is Steve Lichtai. Steve's an executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He enjoys macrame and windsurfing, and he wants you to know that his favorite part of a lady is her smile. Oh, isn't that nice? The gist We'll take the ceramic Dalmatian and the rest on gift certificate. Definitely not a count. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.